The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. probably recognize that song. That's Blackbird by the Beatles from the album Bedtime with the Beatles by Jason Faulkner. This was a great CD for bedtime when I was raising my kids that they were toddlers, no loud noises, nothing startling, just soft and gentle songs, adaptations of some classic songs by the Beatles. Paul McCartney is a fan of this album. And so was my house. There was nothing better than to settle in under a lamp, put on some soft music, a baby in my arms, reading a book. And now my children have grown and they still love to read. And I am full of nostalgia. But I also enjoy this time, too, when we can read the same book and still have all that wonder and excitement and satisfaction of a surprising story, an exciting story, a moving story, a great story, well told. We're looking at Raising Readers today on the History of Literature. Jack Wilson, welcome to the podcast. I know you have choices. I'm glad you're here with us. We have a good topic today. Mike Palindrome is going to be here in a few minutes. El Presidente himself. Raising readers. What kind of impact does literature have on a child? And what does that mean from a practical standpoint? Not just theoretically. Books are good. Reading to your kids is good. Yes, yes, yes. We all know that. We can all agree on that. But how does one go about it? How does one take those practical steps? Let's start with the email that inspired the show. It comes from our listener, James. Good morning, Mr. Wilson and Mr. Palindrome, says James. I've heard you talk about your children, and I have an episode suggestion. I have a daughter due July 7th. I thought today how cool it would be to get a parenting lesson from you both, literature-related or whatever. Did you consider representation of authors and characters when reading to your kids? Genres, themes, or whatever you did, didn't, or would consider now in hindsight. I know the value of reading, having books in the house, and exposing children to expansive vocabulary. I've not listened to every episode yet. I'm probably close to half through. So, if I overlooked this topic, please forgive me. James Thank you for the email, and congratulations, July 7th. As it happens, that's very close to my own birthday. 
So selfishly, I hope she's a couple of days early, which will link us together in the cosmos. And I wish the very best for you and your wife or partner and your forthcoming baby. How amazing it is to be a parent. It is the hardest thing in the world to do, but also the very best thing in the world. Nothing is better. Nothing will stretch you out more. Not even literature. But what about combining those two pleasures, babies and literature? Well, now we're talking. We can get a little carried away with it for sure. Parents can, just like they can get carried away with sports or music or everything else. James Mill got a little carried away. I'm going to read a passage from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophers about the, or of philosophy, about the utilitarian philosopher James Mill and his son, John Stuart Mill, who was the subject of the intense, rigorous educational ideas of his father. Quote, John Stuart Mill was born on 20th of May, 1806 in Pentonville, then a northern suburb of London, to Harriet Barrow and James Mill. James Mill, a Scotsman, had been educated at Edinburgh University, taught by, amongst others, Dugald Stewart, and had moved to London in 1802, where he was to become a friend and prominent ally of Jeremy Bentham and the philosophical radicals. John's remarkable education, famously recounted in his autobiography, was conducted with the intention of equipping him for leadership of the next generation of radicalism. For this, at least, it prepared him well. Starting with Greek at age three and Latin at age eight, Mill had absorbed most of the classical canon by age 12, along with algebra, Euclid, and the major Scottish and English historians. In his early teenage years, he studied political economy, logic, and calculus, utilizing his spare time to digest treatises on experimental science as an amusement. At age 15, Upon returning from a year-long trip to France, a nation he would eventually call home, he started work on the major treatises of philosophy, psychology, and government. All this was conducted under the strict daily supervision of his father, with young John holding primary responsibility for the education of his siblings. The intensity of study and weight of expectation took its toll. Mill had internalized the radical and utilitarian creed during his education, a process capped off with a close reading of Bentham in Dumont's French translation and editorial responsibility for Bentham's rationale of judicial evidence, and had begun to put it into practice as a youthful propagandist. But he quickly found that his education had not prepared him for life. Mill suffered, aged 20, a mental crisis. It occurred to me, this is a quote from Mill, it occurred to me to put the question directly to myself. Suppose that all your objects in life were realized, that all the changes in institutions and opinions which you are looking forward to could be completely affected at this very instant. Would this be a great joy and happiness to you? And an irrepressible self-consciousness distinctly answered, No, I seemed to have nothing left to live for. Mill's malaise continued through 1826 and 1827. Though such episodes were to recur throughout his life, his initial recovery was found in the poetry of the Romantics. End quote. 
In the poetry of the romantics, that's where he found his salvation. That's a fascinating coda to the story. I think we'll need to devote a whole episode to Mr. John Stuart Mill, one of my personal heroes, and a fascinating case study in overzealous parents and the role of literature in an education, especially the literature he was denied and which then helped him as he matured into a young man. But let's jump forward to the present day. About 10 years ago or so, The Guardian asked several writers to send them a list of 10 books that all children should read. Andrew Motion, the poet laureate at the time, jumped in with a list of heavyweight classics, The Odyssey by Homer, Don Quixote, by Cervantes, Hamlet, Paradise Lost, Lyrical Ballads by Coleridge and Wordsworth, Jane Eyre, Great Expectations, Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, Ulysses, and The Wasteland. (laughs) That's his list. Oh, my. Ambitious. Ulysses, The Wasteland, Portrait of a Lady. A lot of of grown-ups can't finish Portrait of a Lady. It is a, a good book. I should do an episode on Henry James soon. Might have to ask Ms. Jack Wilson to... Chime in on that one, one of her dissertation subjects. Paradise Lost. Those are the top 10 books for school children. In Andrew Motion's eyes, other authors jumped all over this list, said it was a little bit unrealistic, but Motion defended his picks. Quote, of course it's a high ambition, but I see no intrinsic reason why children shouldn't read these works. They are wonderful, profoundly democratic works of art, but because some of them have a reputation as difficult... They are put in a box and called elitist. The minute you do that, the backbone of culture is removed. We admit there is a problem at the moment with knowledge, and I feel absolutely no embarrassment about naming these as sine qua nons. I find it maddening that these books should be dismissed as elitist. That way, cultural vandalism lies. End quote. Author Philip Pullman, who wrote the His Dark Materials trilogy, was a little softer in his choices. He had the Moomin Troll books, which are highly recommended for kids, and a lot of others. Fairy tales, myths, and legends. Interesting read. Put those on your reading list. J.K. Rowling participated. She listed Animal Farm and Wuthering Heights and Beatrix Potter. She also had Hamlet, To Kill a Mockingbird, and Catch-22. She added Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Robinson Crusoe, David Copperfield, and The Catcher in the Rye. Pretty good list. Sort of a standard list. Nick Hornby, the author who is himself the king of the lists, declined to provide a list. He said, quote, I used to teach in a comprehensive school, and I know from experience that many children are not capable of reading the books that I wanted them to read. If I chose 10 books that I think would be possible for all, it wouldn't actually be a list that I would want to endorse. I think any kind of prescription of this kind is extremely problematic. End quote. So, where does that leave us, James? Mike and I are going to give you some suggestions here, some ideas based on our own experience, not so much specific books, but a kind of attitude or an approach that has worked for us, along with some things that don't work as well. I try to set this forth in the conversation with Mike, but I'll try here as well, this caveat. Important thing is that you remember what literature is for. It's not 
checking boxes. It's not crossing things off a list. It's not a ladder with rungs you can climb. Step one, Dr. Seuss. Step two, roll doll. Step three, Harry Potter, until you get them up to Plath and Kafka and Wolf and Tolstoy and Joyce and Morrison and Dante and Jane Austen or whoever you have at the top of your ladder. It's holistic. It's all-encompassing. Let me tell you a couple of stories to try to get at what I mean. When I was a new parent living in New York City, I went through a stretch where I took my son to the American Museum of Natural History every single day. We lived in a tiny apartment, and we would use the city itself as our basement, our playground, our backyard, our toy room. We had Riverside Park on nice days, and the Children's Museum, and places like the American Museum of Natural History. And other people, when they heard I was taking my son to the museum so much, had this image of me indoctrinating him with science. I was viewed as a gunner, a tiger dad, trying to turn him into a paleontologist. But that wasn't why I went. We would have days at the museum where all he did was run up and down a ramp in a quiet hall where nobody else was. Some days we'd go and sit underneath a dinosaur and chat about something different altogether. Some days we'd watch the movie about cladograms, narrated by Meryl Streep, six times in a row. Some days we would find the alcove with the windows that looks out over Central Park, hang out there for 20 minutes, read a Thomas the Train book, and leave. There was no science going on in particular. It was the space. I wanted him, age one and age two and age three, to be in that beautiful space with those high windows, those vast rooms, some of them shadowy, some of them bright, adorned by the exhibits. I wanted his body to be moving through that space and his mind to be absorbing the variances of that space. There were no facts that I thought he needed. There was no quote-unquote education I thought he would derive from being there. I liked the people who were drifting through and the general atmosphere, somewhat hushed, somewhat eager, usually engaged. I liked watching him, seeing what he responded to, and then maybe introducing him to something else something new, or maybe following him as he discovered it for himself. Reading can be like that too. Think of literature as a world, as a set of rooms, a set of different spaces. One book might be colorful, full of brightness and energy and life. Another one might celebrate the grayness of a rainy day and the pleasure of being under an umbrella with someone you love. One might be terrifically exciting. One might be melancholy. One might be as familiar as an old robe. A different one might be challenging and new and full of language that itself opens new doors. But here's the beauty of all of it. Your daughter is going to be there with these huge, wide eyes and this wide-open brain ready to take it all in. And all of it, the stories, the words, the characters, will be part of her life 
and you'll see it making her, shaping her, molding her into a new person. And part of that shaping and making and molding will be you, her experience of you reading her the books, of you setting aside the time for her, of you being there for her as her dad, sharing the experience right along with her. You will be the guide to her journey and her companion and the reassuring and familiar presence for all these new worlds she will get to explore. And then she'll grow into someone who can read for herself, and you'll still be there, making the books available, recommending some you think will be just right for her, giving her new things to try, and being there for her to tell you what she likes and what she doesn't, what she finds boring, what she finds confusing, what she finds scary, what she finds beautiful. And you will get to know this person you helped raise. And you'll be very, very proud. I'm so happy for you, James. Best of luck. Now, one other story to give you a taste of parenting. This was something that happened to my wife. She was telling my son a story. He was about four. It was a story that she was making up, and somehow she was fixated on the color blue. So she was telling the story about Blue Land, and how in Blue Land, the cars are all blue, and the trees are all blue, and the people are all blue, and the houses are all blue. And she described the scene with a blue mother tucking a blue child into his blue bed under his blue covers. And the last thing she said to him was, Blue night. And my son thought that that was the funniest thing he had ever heard. The absolute funniest. He died laughing. If you've ever made a kid laugh really, really hard, you'll know how awesome that feeling is. It makes you feel like a superstar, like the king of the world. You wouldn't trade places with anyone for any amount of money. You are so proud of yourself. So after my son stops rolling around on the bed laughing, he says, tell it again, tell it again. So she told the Blue Land story again. This time he was excited the whole way, anticipating the ending, even more excited than before. And she got to the part where she said, Blue Night, once again. And this time he laughed a little. And then he looked at her and said, Okay, tell it again, because it wasn't as funny that time. <laughs> and she was completely deflated. Of course it wasn't as funny the second time. She thought, why do I have to tell it a third time? Because guess what? It's going to be even less funny the third time. And I heard that story. And first of all, I loved it because I loved hearing what was happening when I wasn't around and knowing that there was so much surprise and delight and sheer joy, so much love in that story coming from my wife to my son and back from my son to my wife. And it was so him. Already seemed consistent with his little personality. It's already so logical, so methodical, trying to piece things together. <laughs> I had to laugh a little inwardly 
I didn't laugh at her, but I laughed a little inwardly at the fate that had befallen my wife. I was glad that it hadn't happened to me because she had to keep telling the story, doomed never to repeat the magic that he was trying so desperately to recapture. But what I also loved was that I saw that he was learning something that I'd have never thought to teach him, how surprise works. He was somewhere on the scale between peekaboo, where the exact same surprise can make a baby laugh like crazy over and over and over, and where I am now, I guess, which very little surprises me. I suppose I laugh once a month at some surprise, if that surprise. You don't think of those things before you have a kid. You think, okay, I better get ready. I will need to teach them the ABCs and their shapes and colors and farm animals and I suppose math. And someday they'll be learning algebra and world history and I'll probably need to make sure they know all about safe sex and drug addiction and drinking and driving. They'll need to know all those things. And then when you're watching a baby, you realize... Oh my God, today we learned about what surprise is. And you watch them staring at their hand and curling their fingers and you think, my God, they are learning how to control their fingers. They're learning what it means to have their brain tell their hand to make a fist. They are literally learning who they are. And in the context of literature, you could make a nice list and say, my kid is going to read Dostoevsky and Dickens and Shakespeare and be cultured. And we'll do it early and they'll be ahead of everyone else. But if you're paying attention, really paying attention, you'll know when your child needs Dostoevsky and Dickens and when your child needs something else altogether. You'll know when something else is more important. You'll know when you go out to the vast meadow that literature is. Sometimes you'll be chasing butterflies, and sometimes you'll be feeling the dewy grass between your toes, and sometimes you'll pick daisies, and sometimes on those special days you'll be lifting your finger and pointing to the sky, and your daughter will follow your hand and see the rainbow, and all of it will feel necessary and all of it will feel important, and all of it will feel right, and all of it will feel like magic. Mike Palindrome, after this. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now for a discussion of literature and child raising is our old friend Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So this is in response to a listener email, which I read during the introduction. I have a few things that I've prepared in response to our listener, but mainly I'm just going to ask you your thoughts because I think you're a more systematic parent than I am. Do you think that's fair? I, I have to credit the pretentiousness of my sister growing up. <laughs> and as much as I'd like to take credit for myself, I think having, I, I actually read a study that having an older sister mm. makes a, a guy, the younger brother, turn out to be exceptional. Mm. Well, I have an older sister, but I don't track things as a parent. I don't track things with spreadsheets the way I think you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, at some point, I've diverged into my own little world and my own <laughs> eccentricities. But And then I did the same study said that women who have an older sister also have a much happier life and have a more fuller life. So it seems like the, the formula is having an older sister. Hmm. So let's establish a few things. You and I grew up in the 70s and 80s, so we've got some knowledge of children's literature from that time period, and then we were basically adults, free adults in the 90s, and then we had kids of our own in the 2000s. I have two boys, mm -hmm. 13 and 11, and you have a girl. Is she 13 or 14? She just turned 13. Just turned 13. Or actually, she 13 and a quarter. <laughs> speak the way she she would <laughs> 13 and a quarter and before we begin and i i pepper you with questions i wanted to mm -hmm. give a sort of a blanket caveat and i think you would agree with this too that i am not and we're not trying to be dogmatic here or prescriptive every parent needs to follow their own path and there are no hard and fast rules or right and wrong answers and i I have enormous sympathy for all parents. It's a really hard job, and I know that all kids are different and all circumstances are different. So please don't take anything that we're saying here as advice that must be followed or anything like that. On the other hand, we've both thought a lot about this. We're right in the thick of parenting, and if we've stumbled across something that has worked or hasn't worked and we can share it now and it can help others or maybe at least be interesting, then that's great. That's the spirit of the advice we're about to give. I guess I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that brings us to the first question, which is, I understand you put together a five-year plan for uh, raising your reader, which sounds a little ominous, a little controlling, a little organized. When did you start this and what was the plan? So I wanted to introduce you know, my daughter to poetry. Mm. I really felt, I, I had read an, um, I think an essay by Martin Amos who said that at some point he stopped reading fiction because 
he felt that fiction had a lot of gimmicks. Mm. But mm-hmm. there was something about poetry that was pure, like pure expression, pure originality. Mm-hmm. And he he made the claim that um, poetry is the most important form of creative expression, like more important than music, more important than certainly more important than fiction. Wow. Um, and more important than painting. And it has to do with the fact that it's the closest thing to it's the most difficult searching that a person can do. Mm. I thought you were going to say it's the closest thing to thought. Yeah, I mean, it, maybe that's that's also a part of it is the fact that writing doesn't you know, the whole thing with stream of consciousness and Virginia Woolf, like, you know, no, she's not saying this is the way our thoughts work because we can only wish that our thoughts were like Virginia Woolf's writing. Right. I mean, our thoughts are a big morass. It's chaos. Right. But it so, might, there might be, I mean, poetry at its best is distilled into language and the language uh, is what we have inside our brains to formulate our ideas and any sort of imaginative leaps or, or logical chains or anything that's going on in our brain. We need to use language to help us process it. Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, I always remember that essay and I, so I would read, I I decided I would read poetry aloud, um, mostly that rhymed. Um, but also that I found to be interesting sounds. Mm-hmm. And then I would read her stories and then encourage her to read on her own and always kind of read to her a little above her ability. Mm. So when she was two, she could kind of like, or maybe not two, three, she could look at some board books mm-hmm. and I would be reading her chapter books. Right. And... I would always try to read, look, hold a book in front of her. I really, I had this thing about, you know how like you don't want to be caught. Um, and maybe this isn't the right episode to talk about those kind of things, but you don't want to be caught doing something. <laughs> and so you oh, wait, put on well, your best when, face. I guess picking your nose is what, you know, okay. here's, there's a PG example. <laughs> when so you... you don't, when you say you would hold a book in front of her, you don't mean hold a book for her to look at. You mean you would hold a book that yeah. that she would see yeah. you reading. Exactly. Yeah. So like, you, you know, when you're dating someone, you don't want to pick your nose in front of them. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so that in my mind, I, I just didn't want to hold a screen in front of her and look at my iPhone. So I always wanted to have a book in yeah, front of me. Yeah, that's a big thing, isn't it? And yeah. I was just too early. I don't know if, I don't know when exactly iPhones came in, but I was kind of a late adopter. And so I didn't, I had a flip phone, I think, for most of my kids' preschool years. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have that temptation. And I completely understand it because so much of parenting is, is, is boring and you're, you're dragged into this world of a three-year-old world and you're around other three-year-olds and it can just be exhausting and you, you need that mental escape. And I know that if I were a parent, again, of a three-year-old, I would be tempted to just have my phone out all the time. But you yeah. do, I do see those parents on the train and you see the kids who are in the, in the stroller and they're just looking up at their parent and their parent's face is not there. Their parent's face is, is buried in the screen. It's glowing blue with the screen. 
And <laughs> it does seem like there would be an impact there on the kids. Again, not to not to be judgy or anything, but it does seem like if you can set a goal for yourself and stick to it most of the time, that would be one of them that seems like a worthy goal. And, and I'm a person who watches a lot. Soccer is my thing, and I watch a lot of soccer. And I watch a lot of movies, but I always, I, I really, when they were, when she was under the age of five, I always try to, to not do it in front of her. Mm. And so that was part of my plan to keep the highest standards. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I would slacken and fall short. But I think um, she grew up thinking that poetry was the pinnacle. Mm. Mm-hmm. She grew up thinking that poetry was should be jokey and funny, and it's okay not to understand. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. That it's okay not to understand. So it's yeah. I could see where that would prepare her for a lot of things in literature and in life. But just to stick to literature, I think, for example. Uh, Shakespeare is something where when you first encounter it, a lot of people can find it to be a hurdle that's hard to overcome because there might be words that you can't follow or or lines of dialogue that you can't track. But then if you just give yourself over to it and watch the play, you realize you're following everything that's happening. There might be a few things here and there that you miss, but but you know the story and you know what's going on. It's very enjoyable, even if you're, as long as you go in with the right attitude toward it. Yeah, I mean, it's, so I, I think there's, uh, th- th- there are certain stories that when she was younger, I would tell, I, I, I would read excerpts from, because I knew that it could, I couldn't hold her in te- attention for the entire story. So I'd read her actual, because I, I noticed this, there was a children's Shakespeare series. I'm trying to find out what it was, but they would take actual lines of Shakespeare, but mm-hmm. it was obviously curated so that they would be backstory and like very easy to understand for, for a kid. So I, I would do that. I learned from that to do that with like a short story like The Overcoat by Gogol mm. or, the, or The Nose. So I would read actual lines and actual like favorite <laughs> passages but then i would kind of fill it in and be like yeah there's this nose walking across the bridge <laughs> and she would she would laugh and she would get it but yeah and i also you know understood like no kid <laughs> wants to sit and listen to stuff they can't understand for 30 minutes but a kid will sit it for to and listen to stuff they don't understand for about three minutes yeah and I would use that three minutes to show them like, well, they're still telling because she would ask me like, what's all this stuff? Is it related to the nose? And I'd be like, yeah, this is the nose. <laughs> this is what the nose is doing. So setting the high bar, but then also acknowledging that, hey, it's it's boring to be talked at. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I agree with setting the high bar. In my family, we have this Suzuki piano teacher who is such a, uh, she's very kind and very gentle and very soft-spoken, but she's a complete ruthless taskmaster who's very demanding and demands perfection. And other parents would say to me, how are you managing to survive this with two kids in this thing? We can't live up to her expectations. And (laughs) I would say, well, that's the point. You know, that's how I view it is, you're never going to live up to her expectations. You'll never make it. You'll never do what she wants. No uh-huh. one no one ever could. It's impossible. Uh-huh. But 
The good thing about her is you will never drag her down. She will always stay at that level and you'll never get that where the the teacher kind of gives up and says, well, you know, this is, if this is all you can do, then why don't we just have a good time? Or if, you know, if, if you're not going to take this more seriously, I can't help you. Instead, she just will keep telling you what perfection would be. And it lets you work as hard as you can toward achieving it. The thing with that approach is it, it if you want to be an intense, insane student, it allows for that. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah it gives you yeah. that. It gives you a ceiling. Yeah. So, you know, and like you mentioned before the difficulty of parenting not only is parenting difficult but it's uh, i i think of it as kind of stultifying yeah. sometimes and yeah. um just to pass the time i would read to my daughter when she was probably like a year and a half sylvia plath poetry mm. uh which i'm sure she couldn't quite understand quite a, she couldn't understand at all but i enjoyed it and i think she could tell that it, you know, mattered to me. Yeah. And so I would actually, I try to, I did memorize a couple of her poems and I would recite them to her and she would recognize the words when I was reciting them to her in like a supermarket from what I had read to her uh, at home. Right. That's a good idea. And with all these things, if you roll out the Sylvia Plath and the kid goes running away with their hands over their ears. I'm not saying you should, <laughs> you should continue with it because, yeah. you know, it's the best thing to do. But it is worth trying out some things and seeing how they respond because you never know. All kids are different. And sometimes kids are happy with whatever you're giving them. But that doesn't mean that just because they're only two, you have to be reading books for two-year-olds to them. Yeah, I found uh, at one point that my oldest son, he could he could sit and read anything. You could read anything aloud to him, and he would sit in your lap and and follow along with with the book. It could be, it could have been a science textbook, and he would have listened. He just loved language. He loved being in that position. He loved the closeness, I guess, and. Uh, he didn't need it to be a picture book. I mean, 90% of what we read him were picture books because it was, we wanted him to learn shapes and colors and and the characters and the stories and have stuff to talk to him about and all of that. But it mm -hmm. did let me graduate into things that I found more interesting, like the great brain books and things that I was enjoying more. Yeah. And then there was a point where I was actually, he was, I guess he was two, and I was reading a great brain book to him and I stopped in the mm -hmm. middle of the sentence. I had to take a phone call or something and and he just sat there. And then when I resumed, he reached out and he put his finger on the word where I was, like where <laughs> I had left off. <laughs> and I realized that he had been, you know, he didn't have any pictures to look at. So he was, he had started following the words along the page and that was when I knew that he was probably would be capable yeah. of reading, you know. And so I, he had also been learning some alphabet sounds and that kind of thing. And so I started making words for him and showing him how the sounds fit together and, and you can read. And, and he got it right away. But it was really, he didn't mind just looking at the, at the pages. Now, my younger son, 
was the complete opposite. And he wouldn't sit still for any book in any order. He would <laughs> never turn the pages consecutively. You know, you, he, you'd start to read him a book and he would flip to the end and then he'd go back to the middle and then he'd go to the end. And he also refused to do anything that was age appropriate. So uh, he wanted to be like his older brother. So he wouldn't read. He never read a Dr. Seuss book. He never or listened to a Dr. Seuss book. He never watched Sesame Street. He never would do anything because his older brother had graduated out of those things. So he would rather sit with a Harry Potter book open and flip <laughs> through the pages as if he was reading, uh, right. you know, rather than have someone read him hop on pop. <laughs> so what else uh, did you try with your daughter? What else worked? I would talk to her about song lyrics. Mm. Um, this is probably when she was about three or four, because I, I remember I had a high school, I took a high school poetry class and the teacher was very interested in what we considered to be good song lyrics. Mm -hmm. I, I told my daughter about a rhyming dictionary and that how there is no, there's no magic to poetry. It, you know, people are not sitting there like, and you know, the words flow through them like spirits. I mean, they are sitting there over a desk struggling, trying to write, write poetry. And so they use rhyming dictionaries. They read other poets. And then I would talk to her about derivative versus original. Mm. Um, that was probably when she was uh, much older, probably around five or six or mm. seven. Because mm -hmm. I think we watched the movie and then we talked about sequels. And so she was, that. I think that concept bowled her over. She couldn't understand why derivative was bad. Yeah. <laughs> 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 she was like, why, why, why wouldn't you want the same thing? I like uh, that. I like, <laughs> I like the way that's something that, that maybe we don't always give kids credit for is as yeah. they're learning these things and as they're exposed to so much and they're, they're watching so many shows or they're hearing so many stories or, you know, they hear, hear storybooks all, all day long, basically. They are also absorbing the form as well as the content and the the structure of it. And so things like, you know, to talk about things like sequels or recurring characters or things like that that are a little more, a little more meta, I guess, can be really engaging and interesting. And I, I remember I used to tell stories to my son, bedtime stories, I would make them up. Mm -hmm. And I would always start out and I would say, once there was a little boy named Carl and he was, he lived in a shoe and he, and I would sort of, you know, do that. And then, and one day uh, he heard a knock at the door and, and then I would go into the story. <laughs> and I realized, <laughs> I realized once that if I ever made the background and the setup a little too long, you know, uh -huh. if I started talking about Carl and I said he lived in the shoe and then I sort of said, you know, it wasn't a tennis shoe, it was a dress shoe and it had black laces, except one of the laces had a, a, a little tear in it. My son would say, when suddenly, <laughs> <laughs> and I realized he had basically absorbed the structure of the story 
And he knew, okay, we're going to get a little bit of setup, and then there's going to be a disruption, and then we're going to get the story going. And if I ever kind of got lost in myself or just out of sleep deprivation or whatever, and I I gave too much detail and and background and setup, he would want to move things along. He wanted to get to the the meat of the story. And so... (laughs) He would do that with a transition like that. I think Dungeons and Dragons, which I used to play with my daughter. This is oh really? Yeah, she's that was older. That was probably um, around <laughs> seven or eight. But I think she, what she really loved was the way that you could just make stuff up. And mm. she was she was very much onto me because I I was the dungeon master, and she and her friends were the um, were the adventurers and they could sometimes sense that I was just flying by the seat of my pants. <laughs> I'd be like, it, it started to rain and the rain was really heavy and they would be like, what do you mean the rain was heavy? What are you talking about? I'd be like, oh, I mean, it was like dangerous rain. They were like, what? So, <laughs> so one of them would say, or my daughter would say, you know, like, well, maybe the rain stops, but the ground gives way. And I was like, yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, Dungeons and Dragons is an interesting exercise to teach kids the the way that mm. there's nothing more satisfying than the build up to the gold coin. You can't just have the gold coin. You got to have like the reason why you're after the gold coin. And then, you know, my daughter would turn to me and be like, "Oh, you know, it's always hidden with somebody that you think is like really innocent, but they're not." And I was like, yeah. So there, there's a there's a Russian folklore theorist that wrote in like the 20s, I think, Vladimir Prop. Yeah, that's one of your guys. Yeah, and I love his uh, morphology <laughs> of the folk uh, the folk tale. So I would I would break that out. And I I remember I told the story to a bunch of kids, and the parent was like, that's a great story. What's that based on? And I was like, I just mashed some plot lines from this mm-hmm. book. So that's part of the, the other thing I really try to do is expose her to expose my daughter to as many things as possible. Like I exposed her to, um, you know, concrete poetry where the poem looks like the thing. Oh, right. E. Cummins does that. There's a, there's a poem called Swan and Shadow by John Hollander that I like. But again, that's something that, that, yeah. That really, uh, it, it looks, it's a swan on the water and then it's the reflection of the swan in the water. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of stuff, my daughter got a big kick out of. And, you know, so again, like, did she understand much of it? <laughs> Probably not. Did she understand 20% of it? I don't know. But she she understood that a poem could be this way and it was approachable. Right. You know, rather than this something that, was homework. I, I think I really try to, you know, keep an eye on her to make sure she never veered toward the feeling that what I was saying was homework. Yes. I, I always tried to avoid that too. And if all else fails, I would rather that they read, you know, a book that they picked out. And if they yeah. go through a, a six month period where all they're reading is graphic novels, I'm fine okay. with that too. And you just try to steer them toward things or suggest things or point out some of the the goods and the bads of the things that they're reading. But in general, it's so much better to just go with enthusiasm. And I would never assign a book to be read for pleasure, you know, something that should be read for pleasure. I would never assign it. And sometimes I even feel bad about 
buying books that I loved as a kid and and then mm -hmm. thinking it like did I really think about why I loved it and whether it would resonate with the kids with my kids or with with kids today or did I just go yet again with something that I remember liking when I was a kid uh, not all books hold up equally and some of them are mm -hmm. are great but some of them i sort of feel like, oh, I probably could have bought one that was written a lot more recently that would have been better. I think you can't go wrong with buying books. But yeah, I mean, Neil Gaiman, um, who wrote Nevermore and, you know, Coraline, mm -hmm. he is a big proponent. He, he writes a lot about, he talks a lot about um, teaching your kids to read and raising readers, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and he says that he can't stress enough. His position is that they should be allowed to pick whatever they want to read. Yeah. And the time to stress on them that one book is better than the other is high school. Mm. That's when he says until yeah. they hit high school, you should not be you, you should never pass judgment on what your kid reads. And yep. Uh, totally agree. And the great place for that is the public library. They get to roam around and they get to bring back an armful of books and they can take them home. And whether they read them or not, it's not the same commitment as when you buy a book. Maybe we'll buy one book yeah. a week or, or one book a month. But, to you know, they'll get 10 or 20 books at a time at the library. And we go a couple times a yeah. week. So, I mean, and, and part of that you know, you know, that ties into, you know, reading in front of your kid. And like a friend of mine, she and her two boys, they, they actually set aside time um, every weekend where the three of them either go to a place or in their house, sit and read for two hours. Mm. I think they take a break after an hour, but I don't know if there's like a, a quote of silence, but she says that it really is this thing. Like we're all going to do it together. And uh, she's she loves it you know yeah. just think about spending two hours to read yeah you know, what a what a treasure that is yeah yeah or another thing is my kids have uh, always been able to read in the car i know a lot of kids oh, can't man, because that's uh, so lucky yeah i know a lot of kids can't because of or people can't because of car sickness yeah. but you know and we've never uh had television screens or let them watch ipads or anything in the car and so they spend a lot of time in the car going from one thing to another and they'll just pull out the book and, you know, it's hundreds of hours of reading they've probably done in the car. Thousands, maybe. We, we should make some recommendations. I was thinking, um, you know, obviously you mentioned The Great Brain, but when, uh, you know, when my daughter was younger, we got so much out of the Sandra Boynton books. Oh, yeah. The board those books. Are, those are beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and then we, you know, some books surprised me. I there was a book called Stone Soup. Yep, about the old folklore tale, and <laughs> I always found that story so dull. But yeah. my, my daughter loved it. She <laughs> she got she got so into it. She was like, "Let's read Stone Soup again." I was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> now that is really interesting. <laughs> I'm wondering if, okay, so you were probably kind of cynical. What do they do? Like, this soup isn't going to turn out to be any good anyway. It's, they're, um, they're, they're glossing over the societal problems with this stupid <laughs> soup exercise. <laughs> and your daughter's thinking, how resourceful, how yeah, wonderful magical. that they could, yeah. how magical. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, kids are different from their parents. 
So, but I mean, we, we did, you know, I mean, the, here's a book I loved as a child, the Curious George, the, mm. when he goes to the hospital, he swallows a jigsaw puzzle piece. <laughs> oh my gosh, my daughter loved that. And, uh, yeah. And, and then there were books, you know, I, I, I never read as a kid, Raul Dahl, I never read as a kid, oh. Bedtime for Francis. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Uh, so... And Frog and Toad. I mean, this uh, is probably being a child of an immigrant. You know, I uh, never read any of those books. Just didn't encounter them. They, those yeah. were those were some of the best. Those are Frog and yeah. Toad is like a, you know, philosophical uh, <laughs> treasure. Yeah, I, and Francis is I, wonderful. You know, they had a connection. No, I didn't. That just came up. When was that? Oh, it just came up in the food episode that I did. Oh, I, oh, Aaron Lobel. Yes. was did some of the recordings right yeah he uh yeah he he <laughs> the author of wow. frog and toad played the voice in the <laughs> uh bread and jam for francis books he was you can hear him in the recording of it wow uh roll doll was a huge favorite for me uh, some of those books i'm a little mm -hmm. surprised when i read them that kids aren't more disturbed by them uh, there's a lot of the violence. Yeah, there's a lot of violence and a lot of it's it's sort of vicious and savage and abrupt, sudden. It feels kind of shocking to me, but kids kind of absorb it. But the book that I loved as a kid was Danny Champion of the World. Oh yeah, I never read it. Than, oh, that's such uh -huh. a good one. It's about this boy and his father who go out poaching pheasants at night. This boy discovers that his father is a secret poacher. <laughs> and he goes onto the the lands of this wealthy man, and then his father. Once Danny learns of his father's secret, and sometimes his father gets shot, and you know, there's all it's it's like learning that your father has this whole secret night life, and then the father uh, brings Danny into it, and Danny uh -huh. comes up with an idea for a, for a great way to. To poach these pheasants and so he and his father then go on this caper but it's very exciting and it's i don't know it maybe appealed to me and kind of uh they were underdogs they were going to get their food from this rich man who you know had fenced off all of his land wow yeah it's a great book there's a lot of great books for kids you know that that's one of the real pleasures i think of parenting if you love books is there's so many beautiful books and the there's so many beautiful picture books and there's such interesting stories and uh, just such a range of characters and you know whenever i think about ebooks or like any kind of technology replacing mm -hmm. paper i just think yeah. probably the last thing to go is going to be children's books because they're so beautiful and wonderful and they're such great gifts and they're just so great to put in a kid's hand and, and watch their eyes light up as they go through the pictures and, and read the text. Yeah, we used to, you know, there are a couple of Japanese authors I highly recommend um, the for board books at an early age. Uh, Tor, Tora Gomi yep. has board books where the, the pictures are so interesting that w my daughter and I used to dis talk about these pictures like yeah. oh this guy is trying to hail a bus like his umbrella got lost and yep. i mean and, and they're not deep discussions of course but with a two or three-year-old it was great to just see their the you know their engagement with the pictures yep i love those books too and you know you raise an, a good point 
and I want to broaden this a little bit because one of the things that uh, James had asked in his email was whether we consider representation of authors and characters when reading to our kids. And I think mm-hmm. I think he means different cultural backgrounds, different races. Mm-hmm. And I do consider that. But one of the things I wanted to emphasize was seeing every book as a chance to sort of monitor how how it's registering with your child and, and opening a dialogue with your child. One of the great things about kids' books is a lot of them have lessons or or different ideas. A lot of them don't. And, you know, you can go through so many books so quickly that you can get a wide range of experiences and backgrounds and characters and motivations. And it gives you a lot of different things that you can see if they're confused by it or they're or they're bored by it. It's a little it's something that they're already beyond, but it lets you evaluate where your child is and what would be a good thing for you to kind of fill in the gaps. Yeah, no, I think, you know, part of raising a kid to love to read is making the connections between reading and anything else in life. Like I I would talk Mm -hmm. to my daughter about a story we had read. And then if there was some connection that we could watch on YouTube, we would do that. And um, we, well before she could read Pride and Prejudice, we we watched the BBC version with her. Mm. And uh, we watched North and South. Right. Who wrote that? Um, Elizabeth Gaskell. Gaskell, yeah. Mrs. Gaskell. I I don't want to you know, poo-poo technology too much because I think there are ways that film can be magical and movies and TV shows can be magical. So, Mm. Um, but I think that was, we we definitely save that for later. Yeah, I mean, I can't stress enough that as a parent or as an adult, you should really ask yourself, am I staring at this phone because I'm either making money for my work (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or am I responding to something that will enable me to spend more time with human beings? And if it's not one of those two things, you're probably on Instagram swiping your phone. And that movement, swiping your phone, I think of as most one of the most you know offensive movements. Mm. Uh, you know, I liken it to like giving someone the bird that you know that you're flipping somebody <laughs> off. And yeah. it's. It's so, the boredom in someone's face when they're swiping their phone is just, right. it's like the end of, you know, the end of civilization. Yeah. So it'd be like the equivalent maybe would be the grown up who was hiding behind the newspaper, you know, in the past. Or worse. But yeah, but what you didn't see was somebody who held up a newspaper and was crossing out articles (laughs) <laughs> or ripping them up and yeah. throwing them casually to the side. I mean, I guess that's true. Really, I, I don't do Instagram, so I'm not a, a big uh, swiper, I guess. But you're swiping it because you don't want to see it, right? Yeah, you want to get to the next thing. You want to get to the next thing. So what the what the <laughs> child sees is, not only is my parent not looking at me, they're looking at thousands of things they don't even want to look at instead of looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> No, I think oh, it's, man, we're all doomed. This, <laughs> this is a good moment <laughs> to read. I mean, I want to I want to talk, uh, you know, I want to, to to touch upon um, raising readers. The, the, there's a great essay. I know you, you have a beef with Jonathan Franzen, but 
He has a couple of great essays in his mm-hmm. collection, How to Be Alone, about raising readers. And one of them is called Why Bother? Mm. Uh, Why Bother Reading? And the other one is called Mr. Difficult, about the two types of parents that raise serious readers. So I'll get to the latter in a second. But he 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 befriended Don DeLillo through letter writing. I mean, think of I, that's not I don't think that's possible today. But yeah. Um, and Don DeLillo wrote him a letter back, and at the end of it, he wrote, "The novel is." He basically told um, Jonathan Franzen, "Don't worry about other people." Just do this for yourself. So he writes, the novel is whatever novelists are doing at any given time. If you're not doing the big social novel 15 years from now, it'll probably mean that our sensibilities have changed in ways that make such work less compelling to us. We won't stop because the market dried up. The writer leads. He doesn't follow. The dynamic lives in the writer's mind, not in the size of the audience. And if the social novel lives, but only barely surviving in the cracks and ruts of the culture, Maybe it will be taken more seriously as an endangered spectacle, a reduced context, but a more intense one. Writing is a form of personal freedom. It frees us from the mass identity we see in the making all around us. In the end, writers will write not to be outlaw heroes of some underculture, but mainly to save themselves, Mm. to survive as individuals. Which I, you know, I I really liked it. He's basically saying like, Stop worrying and just save yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and, and would you say that as a parent, you're, you're hoping to train your child to be able to save herself? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, so yeah. in the other essay, he says he, he actually he befriended um, a, a Stanford sociologist who had studied serious readers and what makes people serious readers. And um, she found that a parent who reads a lot mm-hmm. ends up having a kid that reads a lot. Mm. Yeah. But then the other spectrum is a parent that doesn't read at all and has no books in the house often ends up having a, a person who reads. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so... So you got to choose. You got to go all or none. <laughs> I mean... He, <laughs> He found that people who were educated, I mean, she, she, the sociologist, but friends and reports on it, um, that people who are educated and maybe read five books a year, some of their kids read uh, and some of their kids don't read at all. Mm. And, you know, that was like the, the perplexing thing that people could have the same level of education could end up so different. Yeah. And I think it had to do with generally people who grew up without books, without um, parents who read a lot, they often read as a way of rebelling. Mm. Mm -hmm. And not only rebelling against parents, but rebelling against their background. Yeah, escaping. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they actually ended up being more likely to become writers. Right. So, and so I, I was thinking personally, I had parents who had both written poetry in their, in their teens and their 20s. Mm. And they had both po- published poems right. in their early 20s. 
Yeah. But then, you know, when they had me they and my sister, I never saw them reading. Never. Because uh, <laughs> they were so busy raising kids. Yeah, they were so, I mean, so we had probably, growing up, we had maybe 20 books in the house, yeah. which is, um, for, so Franzen says, the he, he, the sociologist remarked that the the break the threshold line is a hundred books in the living room. It can't be squirreled away in your bedroom. It has to be in the living room. A hundred books. <laughs> so. Well, that's that's good that you're introducing Franzen. That's basically you are supplying exactly the opposite of what I had said. The spirit of this. <laughs> episode would be where we're not trying to give prescriptive advice. You must have at least 100 books. They must be in the living room. <laughs> so, I mean, going back to what I said earlier, which is my sister's elitism, yeah. um, she would pick up those 25-cent Shakespeare folios you see on, you know, that the homeless booksellers the booksellers who are seem almost homeless but they pick up those shakespeare volumes and they would sell yeah. and she had amassed a, almost a full collection of shakespeare <laughs> and she would bring them home she would read them and then try to discuss them at the dinner table and my father would say his response would be again <laughs> again with shakespeare and he'd be like it's all made up it's all made up <laughs> And that was his way of quashing. Oh, so he had turned against fiction, yeah. basically, as yeah, it was as, like, who, who wasn't reality. Yeah. It was time for this. This is that's for like rich people. How's that gonna pay the bills? Yeah. Yeah. And so my sister I would see her fighting this fighting the good fight and thinking like, Well, I guess I won't talk about, you know, my love of Bright Lights Big City. I mean, because that's just garbage compared to Shakespeare. Yeah. Did you and your sister connect over literature? I think we we did early on. Yeah. Um, but later I had kind of branched off into my own uh, universe. Oh, oh and, you mean reading stuff that she hadn't read? Yeah. I, yeah. Became, I became kind of obsessed with the brothers Karamazov. <laughs> I think I thought I was I was seventeen. I thought that was the perfect book, right. and it was just like there was no way to write a better book than that. Mm -hmm. And I think she, I'm not sure if she read it and liked it, or she read it and maybe gave up on it. I don't know. But yeah. I, I remember friends had given up on it. I'd recommended it, and they'd given up. And I just thought, like, oh my gosh, how can you give up on the Brothers Karamazov? Yeah. <laughs> and then I reread it five years ago, and I I still loved certain a lot of it mm -hmm. but other passages i kept thinking like oh well what does it matter whether <laughs> does it matter whether this gets read now or next week i mean like what's you know <laughs> well one thing is if you were a big reader as a kid and you have a sibling and you have the and you have shared books in common yeah uh, it's a great nostalgia yeah. you know it, it's very fun to kind of email a picture of uh, a book to my sister and that we both remember that we had read it a hundred times each and we remember the exact cover and where it sat on the bookshelf and it, you know you, you don't have many other people yeah. that you could share something that 
if if it was important to you when you were a kid. You don't have many other people who can remember the exact uh, importance right. of it. And my parents would maybe remember the book, but would have a completely different perspective. You know, they were seeing it as an adult would see a child read it rather than experience it as a child experiences it. Yeah, I think my sister and I definitely bonded over like super fudge. Yeah. <laughs> and Tales of the Fourth Grade Nothing, oh. and Sheila, otherwise known as Sheila the Great. Yeah. I mean, those were definitely books that I enjoyed more because, you know, I could chat with her. We reread passages we loved. and Yeah, I wonder uh, if Judy Bloom today, I should ask my kids this, you know, mm-hmm. if Judy Bloom feels a little quaint or a little time traveling for them. But for us, she was right on the she was that was at the cutting edge she was like i looked forward to every new judy bloom book because they not only were interesting and funny and had great characters but they felt like they were all pushing the envelope and that it was something a little dangerous to read you know that it was it was almost avant-garde in the context of children's literature and and i think as they get older you know we've been talking a lot about when they're younger but as they get older, it's it's important to ask them what they're reading and help them make connections because I think that they get you you definitely get more out of a book. I'm not a big um, proponent of literary theories, but I think you get a, more out of a book when you talk about like the writer's class, and mm. the writer's background, and whether this book is historical fiction or inspired by something and like we just watched wonder boys uh the movie and so this is what i mean about connecting the book to to other you know life that she's gonna have seen the movie and she asked if she could read the book and i said yes and we were saying how the book is loosely based on michael shaban's mfa and undergraduate writing teacher Chuck Kinder, who was the inspiration for Grady Tripp, you know, wrote a great first novel and then took 15 years to write a second. Mm. But I think, you know, you, you should take advantage of what I say, like having semi-intelligent conversations with your kids. Oh, yeah. And they're capable of so much. Yeah. You know, it's so they're they're so beyond. I think most kids are they're they're ready for more and even if you're they're used to things flying over their heads so it's not as if they need you to go down to their level i i I can remember though before my first son was born my wife and i had this conversation because we had noticed when we were playing with our nieces and nephews or you know other little kids that neither of us ever really used baby talk we just mm. it just didn't come naturally to us and uh, some of our friends or our siblings would be using the the language of baby talk and we just never mm-hmm. did the only thing we could think of to do was just to talk to the baby normally and and so we had the, we had this conversation where we said do you think that's something we will it will happen to us when we're parents or do you think we just don't have that gene or or that ability <laughs> to to do it and so we said, I don't know, you know, maybe maybe you just start doing it when you're a parent. So then uh, we had the baby and we didn't. And so we didn't really think about it, but we just always talked to him like in a normal adult yeah. voice. And then somebody sent us an article 
that was talking about how important baby talk is and how it's <laughs> used in all these different cultures. And the psychologists have found the way that it helps form the brain and, you know, all these things. So we thought, okay, we better, <laughs> we better give it a try. <laughs> and I couldn't even figure out how to do it. So my wife was, <laughs> she was, she was going to take the lead. So mm -hmm. she holds up our little boy and he's like, I don't know, three months old or something. Uh -huh. And she looks at him and she says, yeah, 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 yeah. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? <laughs> I was like, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> that could not be the baby talking. <laughs> Sounds like a pop song. Yeah. So I did not want the questioning of the paternity to be part of the uh, the baby talk routine. So we just dropped the idea. And it never, again, it sort of fits in the theme of if it works for you, great. I'm sure there are many great things about it. But if it doesn't, you know, that's yeah. okay, too. And and our kids grew up just fine, and they didn't. they don't seem to be showing any signs of the absence of baby talk in their childhood. There are lots of studies that say that at a, at a certain level of household income, there are thousands of more words spoken generally. Mm. And that, you know, I, I always remember, I remember reading that two of the biggest factors for a child's education is um, mother's level of education and household income. Mm. The two of them combined mean exposure of thousands of more words because, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, for, for obvious reasons, they, you have more time to speak to your child. And that's that really is the single driver of mm -hmm. um, exposing kids. Yeah. yeah. OK, well, are there any anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to get to? I think um, the best I've probably said this in prior podcasts, but there was a baby book I read which said that when you have a kid and you are raising them, don't forget that you, you should win over your kid. That mm. You should keep yourself interesting so that your kid is interested in you. Mm. And so at some point, I mean, I'm, more explicitly when they're in high school, they may turn to you and be like, you're not the type of person I want to be friends with. But even before that, I think kids can sense like, okay, this, you know, I like this parent. I like this adult. This adult is fun. Yeah. And so I, I think it's, it's incumbent on parents to, to keep learning and try to maybe if you're not into journalism or into, you know, American history, maybe this is the time to learn about American history. You know? Yeah. And just to do it, to embrace it. Yeah. embrace the moment, embrace the time and try to clear your head and basically jump in and be there. Yeah. Not just kind of checking out or, or giving it half your attention, but trying to give it everything you have, because uh, I'm glad you said that. It's kind of something that's been a little, <laughs> I've heard parents talk about this before and mm -hmm. I've sort of been experiencing it now. When you, you get to the point, your kids are older and yeah. they start telling you, you, you bring things up, like you find an old book 
that you mm-hmm. maybe read a hundred times to the kid, or or we just found a bunch of old CDs, and so we were playing some of the songs, and it was a song, you know, we had like this tape of or this CD of Italian children's songs, and we must have played it a thousand times because the songs were kind of fun, and I liked listening to the words in Italian, and just one of those things we had on all the time, and my kids could not remember it. And they looked at us like they had never heard it before. And you just think, well, what was the point? I'm sure it had some impact on their brain and maybe it was positive, but if they don't even remember it, and then you look back at all the things that you did and Mm -hmm. you think, oh, you know, did I really have to go to the zoo nine times? And did I have to, you know, do all these, did I have to sit and watch the, the band concert and the, the flute of, you know, all the different things that you sort of you labor through as a parent. But what you're saying reminds me, it, even if they don't remember the book that you read, they they are forming their opinion of you as the person who's reading them the book. And yeah. so if you're a grouchy, indifferent person, then they will remember that their parent or, you know, they will develop the view that their parent is grouchy and indifferent and impatient. And, but if instead you say, well, if I'm going to read the book anyway, I might as well give it my all, read it and really engage with the kid and, and and do a voices or whatever you need to do to, to make it the best experience you can have for those 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, It has a, a lasting impact. And since I, I made fun of my dad, I, I'll, I'll compliment him because there was an exercise he used to do make us do at the dinner table, which I resented um, at the time. But now I appreciate it as he used to go around the table and make each of us talk about the, our day, something from our day. Mm-hmm. I just found it to be so forced. But yeah. Now I appreciate it. I think it. You, sometimes you do need to have that kind of a little bit of structure. Well, what was good so. was that he kept at it, even though uh, it probably would have been much easier for him to just sit there in silence or just open yeah. up the newspaper or pick up a book or something. But you would probably do it differently, is my guess. If you were doing that, you probably wouldn't just say, okay, tell me about your day. You would probably think of really interesting questions or come at it from a different angle yeah i mean i sometimes (laughs) (laughs) sometimes i'm just like it's your turn (laughs) say something good (laughs) and then you're gonna track it in your spreadsheet (laughs) i'm gonna judge it i'm gonna rank it and i'm gonna track it in my spreadsheet okay well let's end there mike (laughs) Thanks, as always, for joining me today on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike, the president, for joining us. I hope you have someone you can read to, whether that's a child or a grandchild or a niece or a nephew, or maybe you babysit. Or maybe you and your sweet partner should try reading a story or two to one another. We can all share a little more than we do, I think. We just need to give ourselves a chance to be as good as we can be. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>